You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 11th annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Maynooth University on the 18th and 19th of August, 2023. The conference was generously supported by the McMorris Project, the Irish Research Council, the Department of English at Maynooth University, the Arts and Humanities Institute at Maynooth University, and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. You can access an archive of more than 250 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Tommaso Marcou from University College Cork entitled An Elegy for Captain Daniel O'Keefe of Duhallow, County Cork. I would like to thank um, the organisers of the conference um, and congratulate uh, Mac Morris on the, the launching of the, of the project, um, the online part anyway. Um, and just speaking of um, online projects, I'd like to give a, a special mention today to, um, to Irish Script on Screen, to ISOS. Um, in recent years, they've been um, publishing more paper manuscripts and later manuscripts, um, and ideal most of the manuscripts are written in the 18th century early 19th century Cork um, uh, manuscript tradition um, and more of them are becoming available online now and that makes, it, it changes a lot for, for, for me. I wouldn't have known about this poem if it wasn't for the online uh, presence and um, of the 10 extant copies, um, three are on ISIS. Um, so it, it's, a, it's an incredible um, a tool to have. Um, so here's our first picture um, from um, I said, so we leave it there. Um, on Marina, um, an elegy or lament has been in the repertoire of our professional poets since olden times. From around the 13th century, the lay poets of the schools eulogized their deceased patrons in strict syllabic verse. This continued for over 400 years, eventually giving way to a looser syllabic meter and ultimately due in part to the upheavals of the 17th century and the demise of the schools a new order came about, that is poetry, composed by professional poets in accentual metre. Metrically, these laments are marked by a constantly occurring vowel in the last foot of each line, and by a pattern of two internal assonances. This metrical construction is called quine, and is not to be confused with a type of lament known as quine, or a keen, such as Eileen Dovni Chunnel's quine artiloire. And here's um, an example of today's um, um, meter. Um, you can see it marked in the blue here. We have the internal assonance, and the final foot is um, constant the whole way down um, throughout the 64 verses. Um, so it's oh, Willie. Um, so we might sing as we have a little bit more time today. I'll read some lines. Cred and frechs are spade of orpa, verin hiersa er ira folo. Cred and virish er hish of the bochna, dogna dule, cool re. Gortus, Han Yrian and Mlian the Finolev, Niragran and Ray and Teska Gohert, Han Mari Gantahi Gogor, Fanach Laird and Relton Olish. And a poem like this, um, when we see them edited in the later manuscripts, are usually um, laid out in quatrains. Um, but as you can see here, I know um, we have a, a later uh, example in another slide. Um, it was probably composed in one whole piece and not in quatrains. 
because uh, you can see even here these lines are actually one part of the same um, verse, essentially. Um, so this is, this is something that came up later, but I, I, suspect, I suspect our poet would have written it out um, in, in one whole piece without the quatrains. There is a substantial uh, corpus of elegies in Queen Emeter, um, many of them unedited and ranging from, say, 60 to 180 lines. However, we have only a small number of compositions in the 200 to 400 line category or over 50 stanzas. This long, accentual poem must have competed with the great syllabic elegies in the early years of the 17th century, but eventually took over as the bardic schools no longer influenced the metrical standard for its trained poets. Dovio Brothers' marvellous Thursun Eg Eamon Vigarilt, which is over 400 lines long and is composed for his patron Eamon MacGarilt Tierna Chlein in 1666, is one of the finest and most extravagant specimens that we have. My research on these poems is still in an observational stage, but I can say that every example that I have met with is composed for a chieftain or Taoiseach. The earliest we can date one is 1640. The latest is 1734. I estimate that there are not more than 20 extant examples, and that's a generous estimation. 15 I have read myself from 10 different composers. The two examples from 1640 composed by Pierus Ferter in West Kerry and Padrigin Hake the North Munster, are of extraordinary beauty and quality. Surely they are the product of a literary style that was flourishing in 1640 and not in its inception. What we can be sure of is that the Jacobite defeat in 1691 sounded the death knell for the Irish chieftains and therefore the position of the professional poets that they sustained for hundreds of years, which of course meant that the long laments also saw the end. That brings us to the composer of today's poem, Donal Garov O'Sullivan. I do not have a year of birth for Captain Daniel O'Keefe, the subject of the poem, but I'm guessing based on, on the biographical knowledge that I have of him that he was around 40 years of age um, in the year of his death, 1669. I get the sense that our poet, Donal Garov, was somewhat older than Daniel. If we say by a decade, he may have been born around the year 1620, making him a contemporary of the great Dovio brother. We can gauge by the quality of this elegy that he was a skilled poet and a poet of some repute by the fact that he was tasked with the composition of the poem. We can also surmise that he was supported by the Ichiv, especially Daniel, in his time. Lines in the poem indicate that Donald Garov was not residing in Duhallow at the time of Daniel's death, which suggests that he may have not been from Duhallow at all, but functioned as an olive quarta, or a travelling poet of the Ichiv, which is quite common at the time. Incredibly, this is the only extant composition by Donald Garov O'Sullivan that I know of. If it were not for this elegy and its illustrious subject, we would know nothing of Donald Garov's existence. Shira O'Donoghue Yilana of Glenfless County Kerry also composed a short lament in syllabic metre for Captain Daniel, illustrating that poets from far afield were involved with the Ichiv. Here you have Duhallow, um, and down around this area here, and this might, if you're not very familiar with the area, it's, it's the north uh, west of County Cork. Captain Daniel's ancestral territory, Pobbly Chive, is situated in the southwest of Duhallow. The barony is almost touching the mountainous landscapes of Shliav Lochar that straddles the border area of Cork, Limerick, and Kerry, where subsets of Asulvan or Sullivan are numerous, 
with great posts of that name coming from there, On Rua Sulevon being the best known of them today. There are no obvious dialectical traits in the poem that could give us a better idea of Don Garv's origins. What will be of interest to literary scholars is that there is a clear metrical, lexical, and thematic connection between Donald Garov's poem and his antecedent, Mahrecha is Mahay Lemuloha, composed by Piers Ferter for Morris Fitzgerald, Knight of Kerry, who perished in Flanders in 1640, and the later, Caird en Shifra Nishad Fola, composed by Egon O'Rahle on the death of Dermot O'Leary of Killeen near Killarney in 1696. A close analysis of the three poems is not the aim of today's paper, but suffice to say that reading the three texts, one after another, will leave the reader in no doubt about their literary affiliation. Similarities also suggest that there may have been an inventory of poetic lexicon that poets drew from, giving us an idea of the prosperity this literary subgenre once enjoyed. There are around ten copies um, of the poem in our manuscripts, dating from 1729 uh, to 1845. They are mostly 54 verses long. The oldest copy was written by a Cormaco Dala in the house of A. O'Keeve in Cool Hluver, as it's written in the manuscript, in March 1729. This may well be, and is likely, Cool Hluver in the parish of Cullen in Pobble y Chrive in Duhallow. Most unusually, this copy is 10 verses longer than any other copy that I know of, 64 verses in total. This is the only copy with the four-lined kangal or envoy in Uran meter. The closing section of the poem has eight extra verses. The body of the poem has three extra verses, with two of these verses describing rancorous feasts, gallivanting and excessive gambling in the house of O'Keeve, suggesting that some scribe or poet censored our text along the way. The eight extra verses are in the closing section, and it is difficult to say why they have been removed, but it certainly was not by accident. All the shorter 54-verse versions that we, have, that we have seem to stem from the same source and are pretty much the same um, as the longer version, apart from the missing stanzas, of course. Let us move on um, to the subject, the poem's subject, Don Lokiv. Um, in the interest of clarity, I shall only refer to him as Daniel or Captain Daniel O'Keefe, um, so as not to confuse him with others in the line who are also called uh, Donald O'Keefe, as we found out yesterday. Um, so we can view the slide. Um, introductions in the manuscripts are similar. Actually, the, the longer one is a little uh, more concise than that, but generally this is the introduction in the manuscripts. Um, Donald Garabo Sulvon, the Hum Yerneg, Ronali Hui, Count Schlachtefinikiv, Deog, and Tarnalo, the Hound, Eshen Tirnashedig Shaskanai. Donald Garabo Sulvon composed on the death of Daniel O'Keefe, head of the Sept of O'Keefe, who died on the 22nd day of November in the year of our Lord, uh, 1669. Lines in Shiro, Don the Hu, and Ilan the short poem in Daniel's death support the historical record that states that Captain Daniel O'Keefe died in November 1669. Daniel um, was the eldest of the six sons Don Lochieve had with his third wife, who was the daughter of Lord Viscount Roach of Fermoy. Donal, Daniel's father, was born around 1590 and became Taoiseach of Pobble Lochieve sometime after 1614. 
as Daniel was his first son by his third wife. I think we can fairly estimate that Daniel was born sometime between 1625 to 1630, making him between 40 and 45 years of age at the time of his death. To add weight to this estimation, our poet refers to him as Oigar, a young man, and describes his death as Og-Rol, a young death. His grandfather was Monas O'Keeve, probably pronounced Moenus, as it, as it is in Munster, who, it seems, was still alive in 1598, but died at a young age. His great-grandfather was Arth Og O'Keeve, who was still alive in 1614. His great-grandfather was another Arth O'Keeve, who was the son of Donal, son of Arth. The pedigree can be traced back to the own of the kings of Cashel, who flourished in the 6th century and beyond it. Captain Daniel married Joanna Everett, alias Butler, by whom he had a son called Donal, who died in Achram in the services of King James II in 1691. Incidentally, Johanna is mentioned in our poem, but only in the longer version, and not by the name Everett, but rather Eilward. This inconsistency cannot simply be explained by scribal error as the name Eilward rhymes with the following word, Reint, to make up the internal assonance in this line. A hovon Eilert ni Reint korem, the rein diadot enieg tirfosta. O Johanna Eilward, it was an unfair deal that God handed you with the passing of your husband. The number of Donalds in this line and in other sub-branches of the Yechiv have created a lot of confusion for this speaker and for other more distinguished scholars than he. Richard F. Cronnelly, author of A History of Clown Own, Onuts, Descendants of Own Moore, Eugene the Great, etc., published in 1864, provides us with good sources but confuses the three Donalds in parts. Dermid O'Murrahu's Excellent, Family Names of County Cork, published in 1985, confuses, I believe, the careers of Donal O'Keeve and his son, Captain Daniel, while other scholars writing in Shanachas Duhalla, a Duhalla historical journal, have also taken some wrong turns when tracing uh, the careers of the three Donalds. John O'Hart's Irish Pedigrees, 5th edition, published in 1892, correlates best with my understanding of Captain Daniel's career. In truth, there are many aspects of his career that I'm not sure about, which may lead to some inaccuracies on my part in today's paper, and especially for the recording, this is not set in stone. What is this fury in the skies of Europe? The opening line of our poem suggests that Captain Daniel O'Keefe's death was a sudden one and an unexpected one. The reference to Europe or Europe as opposed to options, other options our poet had, like, say, Fola, meaning Ireland, refers to Daniel's military exploits on the continent, where he forged a successful career pursuing the fortunes of King Charles II. His time abroad was forced upon him by circumstance. His father, Donald of Dromach, the ancestral seat of Pobali Chiv in Duhalo, played, it appears, an active part in the rebellion. He was a member of the Catholic Convention, which caused him to be outlawed, along with many other high-ranking Yichiv in 1643, and in the process 
forfeited Drumach Castle to his brother, A. Nakoskar Hugh Koshki, who supported the Duke of Ormond on the other side. Hugh would be the last O'Keeve to hold the seat. He was forced to surrender in May of 1652 to the Cromwellian army and eventually sentenced to transportation in 1654. It is at this point that the careers of Daniel and his father Donald become muddled. John O'Hart states that Daniel joined the Catholic Confederacy in 1647 and had a company of foot in the Irish army. Cronley provides us a Captain Daniel's petition to King Charles II, praying to have his ancestral lands of Pobolichi restored. It can be dated to around January 1660, after his father's death. It states clearly that Captain Daniel did not participate in the rebellion, whereas his father did, but that his father adhered to the peace when it was agreed upon. And this is a quote from the, from the petition. Your suppliant's father, that is Donal, Captain Daniel's father, cheerfully embraced and constantly adhered to the peace, etc. It goes on to say, quote, And your petitioner, that is, Captain Daniel, never engaged in the rebellion of Ireland, but in the year 1650, your suppliant raised a troop of horse completely furnished at his own cost and charges for your majesty's service under the command of Viscount Muskery, now Earl of Clancarty. Your petitioner, therefore, in the year 1653, being by the usurper and banished, went into France and commanded a company afoot under the command of his royal highness, the Duke of York, Unquote. He continues to say that he followed the Duke of York to Flanders and received several wounds while in his service. The engagement of 1650 referred to in the petition was the defence of Captain Daniel's ancestral house, Drumach Castle, against the Cromwellian army. Testimonials followed from none other than Dunachal McCarthy, 1st Earl of Clancarthy, and his son, Viscount Moskery, Cormac McCarthy, with the former praising Daniel's valour and mentioning that he was wounded several times in battle. The testimonials are dated January 1660, which suggests that the petition was one of the very first written in the dawning days of the restoration of King Charles II. The wounds referred to likely had a lasting effect on Captain Daniel and may well have been the cause of his premature death, a fate that would befall the son and brother of the witnesses, Viscount Mancashel, Justin McCarthy, some 30 years later. Lord Kingston, Sir Nicholas Purden, and others had acquired most of Drumtariff Parish by 1660. Captain Daniel's ancestral lands were fully restored, but only in title, it seems, as he met with considerable obstacles. It is doubtful that Captain Daniel ever resided in Drumach Castle, as it was probably destroyed by then, but rather in the nearby residence in Drumtariff. Lines in our poem support this. Boss e chiv is imacht ronil, dog clar alla vigalev gantora. The death of the e chiv, that is art ogo chiv, and the departure of Donal, that is Daniel's father, left the English free reign in the plains of Duhallow. As already alluded to, the early military career of Captain Daniel O'Keefe is a little uncertain. Some lines in our poem, even if they are a little vague, seem to support the idea that he did take up arms in Ireland before leaving for France in 1653. Accounting for the types of frays that Daniel proved himself in, Donald Garov states that his prowess 
was of no surprise as he had from adolescence gained plenty of experience with an archduke as tutor. I'm inclined to believe that the archduke in question was the Duke of Ormond, who led the Royalist campaign in 1650. I'll read the Irish and paraphrase briefly um, in translation. Is umo sparin under the dad of Ochdonal, umo machere hasiv le lontocht, umo kahir gantahang ne lonte, toga malte and nangan suborta, nirv una gniv kurunta horlesh, fuer ne lano buicht, tahi lorded, archduke, but tutor erdosta. And to paraphrase the last two lines, he received an adolescence. Plenty of experience of the battle with an archduke for a tutor. There you see it in, in green. I've underlined the, 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 um, the, the archduke and tutor. Captain Daniel's physical traits and prowess are accounted for. A skilled horseman, a hunter and a dancer who excelled in games like throwing spears and large flagstones and so forth. He is described as having long, thick, bunched, curled red hair, green eyes, and long, whisker-like um, eyebrows combed and pointed in the style of the day. So quite an impressive man. He had a great white forehead, you know? <laughs> um, where the post says, loftiness or high-mindedness found no place in. So he was a humble man. He was well-spoken and competent in foreign languages, presumably French and Spanish. His knowledge of philosophy, his understanding of common law, and his musical skills are praised. His love and knowledge for poetry is emphasized. His support for the Catholic clergy is mentioned, but only briefly, as is his compassion for the unfortunate, while his courage in defending his people is also lauded. And, of course, his generosity to the poet and the layman is accounted for with some gusto. Special treatment being given to the lavish feasts in his home, suggesting that life was a little more fast-moving in the house of Ichiv than other houses poets may have visited. But, above all, his courage and his prowess in battle is praised throughout. What we have, then, is a portrait in poetry, which in this reader's mind carries an air of truth it, of a great warrior and Taoiseach of the old Gaelic stock. Details are more forthcoming about Captain Daniel's career on the continent. We are told that the Prince of Cunde, Louis II of Bourbon, gave him his very first commission, that he served in the camp of the French kings with distinction, that he served in the cavalry regiment of the great French general Touraine, that he was not timid while serving Marshal Henry de la Fert, and that James, Duke of York, gave him great affection and a post. And referring to the petition of 1660, it is stated that the King of England, Charles II, presented him with two sticks and a satin scarf, a pardon and the right and, and patent um, to rule his, his um, ancestral lands. You can see in the, in the blue I've marked um, or the duke but tutor erdoshta is the herprunsa kunde korer 
a gamper a frank of choroch tug chogain er stead of scopta ig la fecht englek nirvonda tug duke york post this morgen tug resaxon rovide is stroll scarf tug re mahav ganish is a gogish and so forth. So the the yeah, I kind of have to figure out the the um, the egg law fart is what's written, but it has to be the the uh, the general effect. Um, surely it is because he was he would have served under him in, at the time. Um, that one got beyond the scribes, but the other ones they, they must have the other guys must have been better known. Um, this is qualified by the reality on the ground as our poet states that he was not in fact a kaun pobil or the head of a chiv. Near Chaun Fobilho, Ach Posta Don Foril, but that he was a descendant from a line of kings that had ev- held every quality required of a provincial Taoiseach of Munster. Again, his early career may be referenced in the closing lines of this movement that praise him for not raiding his neighbours, not breaking down boundary walls, not burning down doors, or slaying cattle on plains. A censure on the conduct of others during the war, no doubt. In the middle of the poem, Donald Garve recalls an anecdote about, Don, about Daniel's time on the continent. It seems that a Scottish soldier called Armstrong took to scornfully insulting Ireland in camp. We can take it that Daniel set this man straight by calling him out and killing him in single combat. The details of the story must have been well known in Pobal Eichiv, as our poet doesn't have to say much other than allude to it. It is still known in Flanders about the Scot who scorned Ireland. Armstrong has name and character, a fact that failed to protect him from protect his life from your force. Accounts like this show that Daniel is not to be reckoned with and that, he would, that it would be foolish for any man, even the warrior Armstrong, to step out of line in his presence. Some verses later, the, the poet again alludes to the protective nature of his patron, saying, Anthaum the Varish, Badarav unstorlum, Idid Ralev, Nirvagala Dokal. To paraphrase, when you were alive and present, I was secure in the thought that if I were amongst foreigners, foreigners I need not fear insults or threats. The Gollive referred to in this line are probably the new English settlers who had moved into Duhallow since the time of King James I and had perhaps become more brazen in public gatherings as their wealth and power expanded. As I already mentioned, there are ten extra verses in the closing section of the poem, the oldest copy that we have. It is worth reminding you that it was written down for an A.O. Cueve, most likely in Duhallow, only a few miles from Drummer Castle in 1729. These verses, as I will show, were intentionally removed by a skilled poet. In other words, the final section of the poem was reworked. In the closing section, our poet dedicates only three general stanzas to Captain Daniel's hereditary Gaelic line. This is most unusual, as normally a whole movement of anything from 20 to 100 lines is allowed for this in long laments. The second couplet of the third verse differs between the short and the long version. The third stanza in the short version goes, and I have it on slide, I believe. Here you have the 
from the manuscript and then uh, semi-edited um, uh, tr- uh, transcription below. It's unmade, the ghalev, nervakas the fawnav, the viagaradas, kangelte tolil, tarrakarat is saltariv olish, gurvlaha, kart, the chashil, the foril, the number of Normans that have been seen to be of benefit, that were in friendship bound to your life blood. There are tales in the Psalters of wisdom that your bloodline is of the true princes of Cashel. And that's the short version. And we'll have a look at the long version. First two lines are identical. Son made the Galiv Narvakas of Fonov, the Viagaradas Kangelte Etolil, Ginira Gasta na Saxon the Hogish, Mine Ismashe Gachmachne the Doril. The number of Normans that have been seen to be of benefit, that were in friendship bound to your lifeblood, the smart moves of the Saxons you acquired, to the peacefulness and adornment of each branch of your bloodline. And here, and again, courtesy of Isis, our final two pages, this is the long version. So the movement starts here on the previous page and you have the last two pages. So basically, apart from this verse here, completely different in the long version. So it's, it's a significantly substantial uh, change. It's very unusual that you see something like that. Then begin the exostanzas accounted for firstly the Fitzgeralds of Limerick and Kildare, who he states fought for the King of England. In the next stanza, he mentions the butlers, who he says obtained earldoms and dukedoms for, his pe- for their people by supporting the crown. The next stanza mentions the Burks, who he states were loyal to the crown, specifically mentioning Viscount Mayo, a certain, bar- a certain Baron Burke, presumably Baron Burke of Castle Connell of Rittis, um, in County, and, and a certain Baron Burke in County Limerick. The next stanza counts for the Earl of Westmeath, presumably Sir Richard Nugent, the second Earl. The Nugent family are praised for their adherence to the Catholic faith. He then accounts for the Barrys and the Roaches, who he says are connected to Captain Daniel by kin. His mother, Captain Daniel, that is, was a roach of Fermoy. The valiant Fitzmorrises are mentioned. Pristuning or Prestons are mentioned, who he states gained the reputation for their feats in Flanders. In the final stanza of the sixth verse pedigree, a certain Corsa or de Corsi is mentioned. Our poet says, De Corsa son hunkus bohoshke, for le calamacht, aquinus biogacht, fana hatta hum chasavachora, dolgahalla, re Saxon, ganfogra. De Corsi, in the first conquest, got resourcefulness and vigor under his hat to defend his rights and go to the hall of the King of England having had no prior warning. As you, have no, as you will have noticed by now, all these families are of Norman stock, hence the term Golov in the opening statement. It is to be understood from the poem that the Iachiv had political connections with these clans as well as familial ties, with some if not all. All these families are included in Book 2, Chapter 34 of Shaharun Caton's Forest Facet Aden in his list of esteemed Norman families who integrated with the old Gaelic clans in the early years of the conquest and who rejected the savagery and oppression from a certain five named Norman families, rulers. 
Amongst the five outcasts is John de Courcy, who, according to Caton, wreaked violence and revenge on the people of Meath for the killing of Hugo de Lacy, who himself had set about destroying Clown Colomon of the same territory. His accomplice was the son of Hugo, Hugo Og de Lacy. De Courcy and Hugo Og eventually fell out and dragged the men of Ulster and Meath into bloody conflict. This is how Caton put it. And I'm almost finished now. And the end of his quarrel was that John de Courcy was guilefully taken prisoner by a young Hugo de Lacy and that he was delivered into the hands of the Normans. And Hugo de Lacy undertook to prefer charges, a charge of treason against him, the Ravshe Treatur of the Chir Ed, and he was sent to prison in England, where he was for a time in captivity. The king granted him a pardon after that and gave him leave to return to Ireland. Corsiger de Corsi are included in Caton's list of esteemed Norman families, suggesting that John de Corsi stand against the barbarous Hugo Og de Lacy, along with the pardon he received from the King of England, absolved the de Corsis of their previous misdeeds against the Gael. Donald Gorov concludes this section on the Normal families, echoing the teachings of Caton, stating, Neil Trazen son Vedsha dom Olus, referring specifically to the actions of de Corsi, and the Pope supports the statement by referring to Uncorte Ismoye, almost certainly citing Caton's Forest Facet Aden. Questions arise. Why did Donald Garov give special treatment to the Yaqiv allegiances to the normal families in the closing section of this poem and pay little attention to the old Gaelic stock? Why did someone decide that this section should be removed at some stage, perhaps in the early 18th century, and to rework the end of the poem so that there isn't a single mention of normal families anywhere. The answer surely lie in the political climate of the two years. Were there grumblings amongst the old Gaelic Irish of Duhallow about privileges obtained by Eclive because of their cosy connections with the Anglo-Normal families that the poet felt he had to answer in his elegy? Interestingly, there isn't a single mention in the poem of the McCarthys, who Daniel served with distinction in Ireland and in France, and who supported his testimonial for restoration in 1660. In fact, no old Gaelic family is mentioned by name anywhere in the poem, which is very unusual. The closing section of the poem may have been a defence of Captain Daniel's relationship with these Norman families, and that the final line, Neil Trazen son Vechin Domolus, while directly referring to de Courcy's actions long ago, as told by Caton himself, may also contain a subtle subtext with our poet defending Daniel or the Ikhriv clan for their relationship, relationships with the grand normal families throughout the years. This may have been recognised by a poet or a scribe some years later who decided to move it from the record by reworking the end of the poem, thus removing the sensitive, now esoteric, political element, element of Captain Daniel O'Keefe's elegy. Uh, and uh, Thank you for your patience. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. For more information on the conference, go to TudorStuartIreland.com. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.